everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rose Buzz. Um, we have some really exciting guests here with us tonight, so we're going to get started pretty soon. But um, I'll be one of your hosts for tonight. I'm Maggie. I'm an undergraduate resident fellow in Founders Hall, and I'm a senior in animal science. So um, I'm excited to talk to our guests today because they have some interests similar to mine. Um, I'll let my co-host introduce himself. Go ahead, Basil. Hello everyone, I'm Basil. Uh, I'm a graduate resident fellow here in Founders Hall. Um, also very excited to have this talk. Um, we have two great guests and looking forward to a great conversation. Great, so our guests for tonight are Dr. Julia Felipe, who's a veterinarian over in the vet school. She works a lot with immunology and equine sciences, so that is really awesome. And we also have Dr. Andre Kessler, who works in the Department of Ecology and was it evolutionary biology? Yeah, and he works with, um, he's a chemical ecologist, which is also really interesting. So I'm excited to hear from you guys tonight. Um, let's get right into our first question. We'd like to learn a little bit more about more, a little bit more about you guys. Um, so if you want to tell us, you know, where you're from, what your childhood was like, what are the, some of the things that you liked doing back in the day? So hello, everybody. I'm so happy to be with, with all of you. Um, thank you for inviting me tonight. Um, I do miss being in person every Wednesday there, uh, join you all, um, in, in our special, um, you know, gatherings. Um, and when we get a chance, when we have the chance to talk about many different topics. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll get to do this um, next year, some, sometime. So a little bit about me. Um, so I was born and raised in Brazil. Um, I um, come from a middle-class regular family, father, mother, I have two sisters, uh, older sisters. Um, my father had um, um, a small company that made uh, front doors for houses. Um, and uh, my mom worked for the Sao Paulo City Hall. Um, as, as a child, I, I was very active. Um, I did a lot of sports. I loved sports. Um, volleyball was my, one of my passions. I played volleyball, I think, starting when I was six, and I played until a few years ago, um, right until my pregnancy, I guess. Um, so I was in my 40s when um, I, I was pregnant and had my daughter. Um, so I, I loved playing it. Um, and the other thing I loved doing was riding horses. And I got to do that early in my life too. Um, but every, every several, I would say I would practice volleyball twice a week and play tournaments in the, on the weekends. So it was pretty intense um, then. Um, and, um, and, uh, and I think one thing that I remember from my family uh, as well is was going often to the seaside. We, we lived about an hour and a half um, from the coast. Um, Brazil has a very long coast um, to, towards the Atlantic Ocean. So many options um, for, um, you know, going into the beach and, and so forth. And, um, and we did this as a, a lot as, as a family. We spent lots of summers um, going uh, to the seaside and enjoying uh, that part. So I do miss that a lot. Um, that was part of my life uh, growing up, and um, and I wish I could do a little bit more more than more of that. So I'll stop here. Oh, that was impressive. I, I can I can feel with you, especially now, 
you know, hoping to get to a seaside and to more sun. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Andre Kessler. I, I come originally from the former east of Germany. Um, so I grew up in what you would call communist Germany, but um, um, I, I kind of want to argue that communism actually never really existed because communism by definition is democratic and we always had a dictatorship. But this might be a discussion for some time later. Um, but um, so I actually had a very happy childhood um, despite the fact that I grew up in a, in a dictatorship. Um, um, and this is primarily due to the fact that um, because it was supposed to be a socialist country, um, there was a very high level of social security, um, universal healthcare um, that was tax funded. So all the kinds of dreams that we might actually come up with. But on the other hand, of course, there was a political dictatorship that was associated with that. But what that meant though for a child was that um, my parents actually had not to worry much about their lives. And so for me, the childhood was very happy and very much like Julia, I did a lot of sports. Um, I did athletics, I was running and I still run. Um, the distances became longer there and as I became older. So now I'm running only ultra marathons beyond 100 kilometers. And, um, but back then I did a lot of cross country skiing. I also played volleyball, so we have that in common, Julia. <laughs> and uh, um, um, yeah, and so I grew up there. My parents both worked in forestry. My father was a forester and my mother was an accountant. So I come from a very forested area that had a lot of, and still has a lot of state forest. And so it was a kind of larger endeavor there. Um, and um, actually the village I'm coming from or the area I'm coming from, people would talk about um, as the area from behind the forest. So I would come from behind the forest, which actually doesn't mean anything good. It actually means that we are kind of dumb um, or considered kind of dumb. But what that meant was that um, we were behind the forest simply because we were actually living be, uh, uh, you know, be behind that mountain area that was very forested um, from the perspective of the rest of East Germany, because it was where I lived very close to the former inner German border, right, between East Germany and West Germany. Um, and I have to say, you know, for me, and I, I conveyed that to Basel the other day when we talked, um, it was almost unimaginable getting actually out of East Germany. So you may not know that in East Germany, we even had a hard time to get to the rest of the East Bloc countries, right? It was, it was actually really hard to get to Russia. It was really hard to get even to Czech Republic and Poland, right? So travel was not a thing in East Germany. And it was unimaginable to get to places like West Germany, for example, which was only 10 kilometers away, away from where I lived. And it was even less imaginable to come ever to the United States. And now here I am already 15 years. Um, and I kind of stop here for now. <laughs> well, thank you both. That was um, a very good uh, uh, introduction and a start to our talk. Um, I'd like to then move a bit into um, college life. Um, so where did you uh, both attend college? Where did you both attend grad school? And what were your experiences like? I developed a passion for animals in, very early in life. And it was not something that I can explain very well why, because 
I was born in Sao Paulo, which is one of the largest cities in the world. And it was large then. And um, I didn't have any pets. Um, and I lived in an apartment building. Um, and there was no tradition, you know, of having pets or dealing with animals or anything. But I had a passion for horses, something that was very, very strong to the point that um, um, my, I, I asked my mother if I could start riding horses very early. And, and the first time I start taking riding lessons, I was six years old. My mother had to drive 45 minutes to the, um, the uh, riding school, wait 45 minutes for my lesson, and then drive me you know, back home for 45 minutes a couple times a week. And so I have so much to thank my mother for you know, being that so supportive, even though she worked, she had long days, she had really a, a very busy life taking care of a family. But she, I don't know, she supported me. And because of that, I have to say I became a veterinarian. And, and, and not only I became a veterinarian, but I also, you know, crossed the ocean uh, as a veterinarian and, and um, continue my profession um, you know, here in the United States. So that was simple, maybe, maybe difficult for my mother, simple in my, in my view, but it facilitated my, 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 my choice for my career. And, um, and living in Sao Paulo, I went to vet school about three hours from Sao Paulo city because I wanted to live more the rural area. Um, and being close, closer to large animals. That was my, my, my passion. And um, in Brazil, we don't have the college system. So when you finish high school, you go to professional schools. Uh, veterinary medicine is considered a professional school. And um, so I was just 18 years old going to, you know, run, uh, take a, a five-year course in veterinary medicine and become a veterinarian then. So when you graduate, you're very, very young. Um, but, um, and I went to a public um, uh, vet college, um, which was also very helpful because I didn't have any debt when I finished um, my studies. And that was the only reason I could actually, you know, pursue a vet, vet college. My, my family would not have money to support me um, in a private uh, course. So, um, so I'm all thankful to, to that um, because of course it made a difference in my life. And, and, when, and I practiced about five years in Brazil, um, primarily working with horses. Uh, so Maggie loves animal science. So I was um, an equine veterinarian for five years. I worked uh, with, um, um, on a breeding farm um, with um, several mares, I mean, hundreds of mares actually, <laughs> and, and foals. Um, uh, man managing their reproductive um, activities and um, helping foals being born, um, you know, doing a, a lot of intensive work uh, and, and including advanced uh, reproductive work like embryo transfer and things like that. So um, I, I worked pretty, pretty hard. And I also worked with um, uh, the equine um, athletes, um, uh, particularly endurance horses. And I was an endurance rider for a while too. 
uh, and endurance is um, 100 miles in, in, in 24 hours max. In general, you complete 100 miles on a horse, depending on the topography, between 13 and um, 18 hours riding um, with, a, with a few stops. So I did a little bit of that, but I also worked with those horses um, uh, with, with clients that um, did the same sport and so forth. And uh, during those years, I decided that I had more questions that I could answer as a professional. And um, so I decided to pursue further clinical training and uh, came to and came and visit United States to see some of the options that were available. And there are internship and residency programs um, in most all the vet colleges. And so I visited a few, applied to a system called the matching program and I matched at Kansas State University. So I, that was my entry to the United States in, in 1994 um, after visiting the United States, but that was my, my first job at, in the United States uh, as an intern. Um, and then I pursued their um, a residency program and my master's degree, that's when I decided to do immunology. We can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and then came to Cornell uh, to pursue a PhD in immunology and end up staying. So um, my trajectory was um, not planned. Um, it was a surprise on the way, uh, all, all very great surprises. Um, and uh, the trajectory came um, to uh, a point that I never thought um, it would come. Um, so um, we can talk more about that as well. Terrific. Thank you, Julia. So Andre, if you would like to answer there. Yeah, that's really impressive, Julia. And I, I, I like how you emphasize that, you know, the, the different branches in your life and, and how you kind of take one and then it gets you somewhere else. And it's uh, really interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, I mentioned already that um, I would never thought I would actually get out of the country, um, but I was very sure already. I think there is a recorded thing in, in the class book of my fourth grade teacher um, who noted down that I wanted to become a biologist. So I actually have a recorded line if, that I was sure become a biologist in fourth grade. Um, and interestingly, that determination saved me from big mistakes in a way in my life. Um, for example, in East Germany, there was, um, so I was reasonably good in school um, and I was very, very good in sports. And so what East Germany needed and nobody wanted to do was um, high level military people in particular for the secret police, which is kind of a combination of FBI and um, CIA that was called the Stasi, and you may have heard about that, or some of you may have heard about that from movies. And so, and the Stasi had an elite troop um, that tried to um, recruit me um, already in 10th grade in school. And you have to know in, in uh, East Germany, we had a regular school system that went to 10th grade, and then you would only go to high school, which was only 11th and 12th grade if you go on to study. And uh, in 10th grade, um, of course, you, you know, legally you cannot sign anything, you're 15 or 16 years old, right? But they made you sign a contract or try to make you sign a contract to go with, join the army or the Stasi um, elite troops. And um, 
And I was literally blackmailed um, into serving at least 10 years by but the director of my school, they had to kind of get a, you know, a reasonable amount of people into either army or Stasi. And, um, and uh, the director would tell me, if, if you don't sign that, you will not be able to go to high school, which meant automatically I would never be able to go to college. Right? And he would kind of make sure that this happened. And I was supposed to sign something for 10 years. And I said, but I want to become a biologist. And then he said, well, in the army, you can, you can actually study whatever you want. And then I said, no, I jacked it out. I cannot study biology. And, uh, and then they sent, actually, it was really interesting. The, the school, the county representative of the schools was then sent to my father. And my father had an office at home because it was a forester. So he had a, an office away and an office at home. And one day I came home from school and, and the school officer was sitting in there. Um, so this was the county school officer, was kind of the highest person for all the schools in the county. And I was scared to death because I thought I did something fundamentally wrong. Um, and then I only heard my father say, I went to the army. So my father said, I went to the army for three years and I will not recommend my son to go longer than that. <laughs> and so I ended up um, kind of making a compromise and signing a contract for three years. Um, which then allowed me to go to high school. And then as soon as I entered high school, the wall went down and I never went to the army nor to the Stasi. <laughs> and, and that saved me from some things uh, that could have been really wrong in my life. Um, and uh, so I went on and then um, the, the revolution happened when I was in 11th grade. And there, there was though this kind of things. So in East Germany, suddenly um, the unemployment rates went through the roof and we had um, um, between 30 and 40% unemployment in East Germany um, in the time after the reunification. So that kind of put in question to become a biologist. So in that time, um, and I remember the first, the very first lecture when I started studying biology eventually was by an organic chemistry professor. And he used the entire first lecture of the course to tell us how doomed our future as biologists is. So he had these kind of cuttings from newspapers that said, you know, um, eight years of study as a biologist and now a taxi driver and things like that. And, um, and he really discouraged everyone. But this was the notion back then, but this was right before the biotechnology explosion and suddenly, you know, biologists were in demand and still are, which is really interesting. So, and I kept strong and was on the path to become an ornithologist. And I had a list um, already as a young boy of places that I wanted to see in my life, mostly because of nature there. And the first on the list was actually central Siberia in Russia, because it's the center of, um, so central Asia is actually the, the center of origin of a lot of species, especially bird species. Then I wanted to go to Tanzania because I read a book about the Kilimanjaro and the, the area around it. And then I wanted to go to the Amazon basin. And uh, I have accomplished all of those. So during my undergrad studies, um, I uh, got an internship to work in a Russian station for two seasons in a row. And this was still when I was on the path to become an ornithologist and study birds. Um, so I went to central Siberia for two summers um, which was probably the most determining time in my, in my life. And uh, 
I keep saying that this is these two summers were pretty much where I learned everything that I learned to, for my profession. I never learned anything in college, I think. <laughs> and uh, um, so it was a very important time for me and I was sure to become an ornithologist. I was really on that path. We published two papers from, from, that, from those two trips. And uh, all, when I came home though, I had used up all the money. And so as Julia, luckily I was actually in a state college. Um, and so I didn't have to pay. And in Germany in general, you actually don't have to pay tuition, which is a good thing. Um, nevertheless, I had to pay for my living and I had spent all money that I had ever saved up and worked for to go to Siberia. Back then it was really hard to get there. It was three days of train ride. Um, an airplane ride and then two helicopter rides to to be just dropped somewhere in the middle of the forest and and all of that had to be paid somehow right and it's pretty expensive um and so i'd spend all my money but i was also um rock climbing um as well as good in identifying insects and uh, i got a job at the university right when i came back from siberia to um, sort insects that were collected in malaysia um, specifically in borneo and then I got hired into a job to actually collect those insects in Borneo because I was able to climb with gear into the trees. Um, and that sort of started my passion for studying plant-insect interactions. And uh, initially I was, and this was still as an undergrad, um, and initially I was, I did my master thesis then in the University of Würzburg on tree-grown arthropod communities, both in the tropics and in temperate zone. Um, and then, um, was pretty much determined to also do my PhD in Würzburg, um, University of Würzburg, because it had a very strong tropical ecology program and a very strong evolutionary biology program. Um, but the, the, the studies that I did, which was biodiversity research on insects, what you do pretty much is you spray insecticide into a tree, collect all the insects that rain down, then you count them all, right? And this is the tropics. So there are um, just an example, right? You get about 10,000 specimens that fall from the tree between 10 and 20,000 specimens of which when you kind of sort them out, about 85% are new species um, that have not been described before. If you, if you just fumigate that same tree the next day, you get the same number of insects that come down and you consider the previous days insects as now known to science, you get another 60% new species, right? There's a huge dynamic and incredible blowing your mind diversity. And then you do very complicated statistics with the patterns of insects that you collect from different trees. And that was never really satisfying to me because it didn't explain anything. It was just describing patterns. And so I thought if I knew very naively, if I knew what the chemistry of the plants was, so the trees in this case, I could probably predict what species would interact with those trees. And it was very naive back then, but there was a lucky situation in Germany. They had just formed a new Max Planck Institute for chemical ecology where they studied exactly that. I called up the new director and asked if I could uh, do a three week internship, three weeks, right? Three week internship to learn chemistry from him and then, and then come back and do my PhD in Würzburg, right? So I went to, um, to Jena, where the new Max Planck for chemical ecology was, um, and now still is, um, and uh, figured out after three days that I will never be able to do what I had planned to do. Um, 
and then stayed there working on a small plant, a wild tobacco plant that grows in Utah. And since then, I've been a chemical ecologist. And then right after that, um, I got uh, the offer from, uh, from Cornell already, um, right after my PhD was over, but I got this at the same time an award from the Max Planck Society that paid me for a year for whatever I wanted to do. And so I did two postdocs actually, both in Germany and already here at Cornell with that money, um, which was really good for me because I had no idea, I had never taught before um, because at Max Planck, we pretty much needed only to do research. Um, um, and uh, it was always good for me to have that um, actually three quarters of a year that I could smooth in, learn how things go in the United States and how to teach and things like that, and then start actually as a professor here. And this is everything else is where, where I am now. <clears throat> wow, thank you guys so much for sharing your stories. You really have such an amazing you know, career path in life. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, so I wanna move on to kind of, we talked about doing maybe a career advice section for some of the students that we have listening today. So, you know, maybe speaking from your experience, what advice would you give to any students who are struggling to choose a career path? Um, maybe if they've, you know, haven't found something that calls them or they're, you know, switching career paths, what advice would you have for a student in that situation? And uh, Dr. Kessler, you can go first this time if you'd like. Yeah. I mean, my advice is usually, I mean, the thing is, so I, I advise uh, very actively because I'm um, director of undergrad studies. I advise primarily biology students, obviously, or primarily ecology students um, or those in, in uh, um, environmental biology and sustainability. Um, my major advice is first to actually find what you're passionate for, because if you have a passion for a certain thing, you will always be good enough to make money, right? Because that passion will first make you really good because you're interested in what you're doing, but it will secondly also lead you through bad times um, and, and help you through bad times. Now, the problem is though, as Maggie, as you, as you were asking, right? How to figure out what's, what's good for me and what my passion, where my passion comes from. And I think um, especially Cornell's so large universities that are research universities like Cornell give you a very good opportunity um, to try things out. And this is the time that you should use to try things out and use what, whatever is to your exposal, in, to, 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 yeah, to your exposal, is that right? Is that the right term <laughs> um, here at Cornell? So. On one hand, you can do lab internships pretty much in everything, not only in science, right? Um, you can do internships, try certain things out, go by, by heart pretty much. So if you like something that um, a professor talks about in um, their classes, um, ask them if you can have an internship or if they have a suggestion whom to talk to if, they wanted to, if you wanted to work in one or the other thing um, and try that out. If you don't like it, switch it, try something else, right? Um, but go through with that. And this is, um, I think, creating that passion for something and then running through with it is, is the best thing you can do. It makes you happy eventually. And as I said, it will always, you know, or in, 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 a, in a large percentage of cases, it will make you good enough to make money with it. Um, and and uh, don't let yourself drive by, you know, I want to make a lot of money. Um, especially if you, if you try to go into research, you may end up making a lot of money, um, but this is definitely not a guarantee in research. But if you find 
a passion and you go into research, you will definitely be a happy person. Um, that you can guarantee. And so try things out now. It is probably my, my best advice for, for a career. Okay, well, my first advice is don't struggle. <laughs> the reason is um, the options are so many. Uh, once you find your passion, you know, once you find something that fulfills your, you know, your interests and, uh, and create more interest, then, you know, the sky is not even the limit because you can really create a lot from that point. And a career is not something that needs to be determined when you finish your undergraduate, when you get your, you know, um, diploma right now, because a career is something that you, 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 you make throughout your life. So there is plenty of time to, to find, you know, the real things that excite you, um, and and uh, feel that you're, you can make a difference um, in in that field. In in when I was in in vet school and vets and being a veterinarian was the only thing I could think of be, becoming. Um, I was very focused in being the equine practitioner and working from far to farm and and visiting the horses right in their you know own homes and um, having interaction with clients and and I loved doing that but even though that was my you know the only thing I could think of doing when I finished vet college or vet school um, I learned in my first few years of practice that I was more curious about what, what I was doing and I wanted to do more training. So that took me to my additional training. And then when I was a resident doing clinical work, working in a veterinary hospital, I decided that um, I had a case. Um, Rosemary might remember this because I told this to the previous group last year. I had a case, I had a foal that had pneumonia and it was caused by an organism, pneumocysts, that only affects or only causes disease if the host has a poor immune system, if there is immunodeficiency. And when I diagnosed that organism in that patient, it was a four-month-old uh, filly, I said, I wanted to see, I wanted to know which immunodeficiency she has. And, and with that case, it was a 90 degree turn in my career. And I decided to be an immunologist from that, from, um, from, from trying, from wanting to know more about what was going on. So I created a completely different career path uh, to the point that I became a faculty. And I never considered <laughs> when I was in vet school, becoming a faculty, working in academia. That was not, I mean, I was very involved in, 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 in activities at my college, but never thought that I was going to become a faculty. And I never, in, you know, ever thought that I would be a faculty at Cornell University. So those things, they happen in your life. And if you're open for, the, for them, and if you're, if you're aware of the opportunities in front of you, and if you get ready for them and be ready for them when they are in front of you, that's how you make a career because you're going to go from 
you know, 90 degree angles for to 25 degree angles, but, but you're going to create and you're going to follow uh, areas that you have not even thought about um, that would fulfill your curiosity, your excitement, and so forth. So be patient. Be patient about career. Don't think that you have to have all the decisions tomorrow. It, it's not true. Uh, and even if you plan, if you really write down everything, item by item, they are not going to happen <laughs> at, at the same at the same pace. So um, I think I think planning is good because it. Um, it gives you a, a direction and something to work on, um, improve your skills, your, your knowledge. So planning is, is good in that, um, in the sense that it helps you prepare. So planning is good for preparing. Um, but the future, that's the fun thing about it. You have no idea where life is gonna take you. And, and all you need to do is really trying to enjoy it, make the best of it. Now, life is not easy for anyone. I mean, nobody has an easy life. So like Andrea said, if you, if you have something that you love, that you have a passion for, it makes life so much easier because you're going to go to the core, the reason, the, the motivation that's with you um, and, and go over the, the hard times. So I'll make another very brief comment. So Andrew mentioned about dictatorship, right? So Brazil was also under dictatorship for many years, from 64 to 84. And I was born in 67. So I was born in the middle of dictatorship in Brazil. And that was in the middle of the Cold War as well. So it was a lot of pressure. Um, to prevent the Latin America becoming communist. And um, with a lot of violence, a lot of um, um, people disappearing, you know, if you had a, a strong opinion against the government, you were going to disappear. Um, a lot of torture. Um, the media was censured. I mean, it was, those were really hard times. And uh, the dictatorship ended when I was in high school. So it was a, a dramatic transition for me uh, at that time. When, um, when the dictatorship ended, Brazil went through a very hard economic crisis, similar to what happened with the Andres um, pathway too. And I graduated from vet school with an inflation of 80% a year sometimes 30% a month. The number of zeros that were cut in Brazilian currency in my early days, early professional days, I, I mean, I think probably six or seven times. So I, I graduated in a very hard time. But, you know, the beauty of it is that time goes over. I mean, history happens, things change. And you just need to endure um, and find solutions for that period of time. And things will change and they're always going to change for the better. I had my 30th um, uh, reunion with my um, call, uh, colleagues, colleagues from vet, vet school. So we, we've been veterinarians for almost 31 years now. 
And, and I was so happy to see that despite all the odds, the economic crisis when we graduated and so on, we all found solutions and ways to endure and become great professionals um, in our career. So be patient, endure, love what you do, and always make the best of it. And you're always going to be the, the best professional and make a difference. That was very fascinating. Thank you uh, uh, for sharing uh, this with us. Um, so I wanted to, to follow up on many things uh, you mentioned there, in particular kind of the uh, biggest challenges that you faced in your career path and how you overcame uh, them. Uh, you mentioned a few, and if you would like to expand on that, that would be terrific. And then also what advice uh, you would give to students who would find themselves in similar situations? Julia, if you would like to start. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, from time to time, you're going to, in your career path, you're going to question. Question what you're doing, if it's, the, if it's, if it's really what you wanted to continue doing. Um, if, um, if you needed, you know, if, if there is something else that you'd like to explore, uh, or all of a sudden something is presented to you as an opportunity. Like for me, it was presented when I was in the United States. I mean, so many times, and I had to make a decision about, you know, pursuing um, those things. And, um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I, with the self-reflection, I, I asked myself, if I pursue this now, this training, this, you know, this opportunity, where is going, what are the possibilities after it? What is gonna take me next? Um, if I invest in that education or if I, um, uh, you know, pursue something different, what would be the options next? And, and how would that prepare me for, the, for those options? So that was kind of moments of self-reflection. And the other thing is um, I was very fortunate that when I was in the U.S., I had a wonderful mentor. Um, it was a veterinarian um, at Kansas State University. And, um, and he was an excellent mentor. He and his wife were excellent mentors to me. And they really helped me think big, <laughs> you know, th think the, about the possibilities beyond my own capacity of thinking about them. So having a mentor that can really um, give you more information that you have in hand really helps you to make those decisions. And sometimes you have so many good options that you actually, you might be confusing in, in what direction to go. And one thing I can say about that, and that happened to me, is there, are, there is no prescribed order of how you should do things in your life. You don't need to do one course before the other. Um, it, you know, in, in veterinary medicine, you know, you become a veterinarian, you can do a residency, you can do a PhD. Should I do a PhD before my residency? That's a common question that I get. It doesn't matter. It really, one thing is always going to feed the other. And there is plenty of time to do what you want. I was in my 30s, early, uh, early 30s, doing my PhD here at Cornell. So um, there's time there, you know, to do and to explore and move on um, if you think that's the right thing for you. So reflect, think about the opportunities, and then talk to others who can give you um, broader uh, input than you can come up with yourself. There's almost nothing to say in addition to that. It was really, really nice. And I, I, can, I can only agree with that. 
and and the the things the things that will always be in every generation there is at least one maybe two of those crises that we are currently going through and the crisis that 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 is currently going on will define your entire generation already has defined your entire generation even if it was over tomorrow it will define the generation it's always the question of um, can you embrace that during that time and i actually told my students right we, sh we should embrace that situation right now without knowing myself what that would actually mean right um but the thing is what what julia was 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 just saying is exactly that um if you can find a way to to embrace whatever situation is thrown at you and this is something accepting in a way that things will change around you the environment in which you develop will change constantly right and accepting that and actually embracing that will get you through every problem the thing is though you know i i i know this is really hard because ideally you want to have things lined up especially when you are in time of hardship and this is for many of you i know this this is probably a time where your families go, go through hardship um, people lose their jobs um, and and this will affect everything surrounding it but the thing is, as Julia was saying, um, there was a dictatorship in Brazil with a huge economic crisis after that. There was a dictatorship in Germany with a huge economic crisis after that. But people just went on. In a way, there is some comfort in seeing that uh, everybody is actually in the same boat, right? Um, the question is only, can, can we as a community come together and create something better after that or something that is... Um, yeah, really uh, progress, right? And Julia was saying in most cases, it becomes better, in fact. It really becomes better. I was actually talking with Basil the other, the other day um, that I had a bad example of things that didn't, didn't go as well as I had hoped. I was, I was very active in, uh, in the East German um, environment and nature conservancy movement. And we very quickly, after the political change, so even before the reunification, we connected with the organizations, the environmental um, uh, groups and, uh, and nature conservancy groups in, in West Germany. And, uh, and there was this great hope. So there was a community coming together that had a lot of hope because there was, I mean, there was this, this, this incredible enthusiasm, um, you know, and, and forward looking kind of thing going on. Um, and the ideal would have been, you know, bringing the good things from both countries together and then create something fundamentally great, right? And I have to say, in terms of environmental health and conserv nature conservancy, we actually brought the worst things of both systems together in that time, right? Nevertheless, though, the activism of those early 1990s created that um, environmental consciousness that Germany now makes a leader in reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Right, um, and this was born out of that. So the, the rise of the Green Party in Germany, for example, that drove this whole movement, and the rise of a of a actually conservative chancellor Angela Merkel, who was fighting for environmental um, and social equality, which was unheard of before. So that party, she did exactly the opposite of what her party was standing for. But, but she was a child of that activism time in a way, even though she ended up in the conservative party and somehow made it to the top of that men, white men party as a woman and as a scientist, right? 
This is like as, as, you know, as if Barack Obama rose to the top of the Republican Party and then did good things with it, <laughs> right? Um, and, but this was born out of that time so that things actually became better even though in that moment it seemed like we got really the worst of both systems together right after the political change. You know, we had this dream that there should be a green band through Germany because where the former border was between the Germanies, there was a big buffer zone in East Germany that was left alone for over 40 years, right? And it was wild area, right? And pristine nature. And we had this dream that this would, you know, would be a, a protected green band through Germany. It was unbelievable that pressure on that land, unbelievable. And so there's only little parts, little spots of that green band are still protected or became protected. None of which became actually a national park, which is it's another thing, but um, that's another discussion. But in a way it's, it's pretty much embracing the situation and, uh, and try things out. And you are, you're very young, you have everything before you. Um, and don't, and this is what, what Julia was saying. I mean, this is, this is very important. Don't feel pressured. And I know there's a lot of economic pressure around you, but, but there is um, relieving that pressure through just accepting that things are as they are and that you can actually do something about it potentially, right? Go vote, for example, um, or be active in whatever group you wanna be in. Both, it gives you fulfillment, um, but it also gives you some sense of, of controlling something. Um, and eventually the ability to embrace the situation and overcome hardships. Thank you, Andre. I'd actually like to follow up on that and get your take about um, the current environmental issues that you um, see that we're facing. Um, what do you see the major ones being and how do you see us uh, dealing with them? Um, the major, major two big issues um, are still the same as they have been in the 1960s, as they have been in the 1970s, and they have been in the 1990s, and there's this global warming and the loss of biodiversity. Those problems are not novel at all, and we knew the urgency to do something even in the 1960s, right? I mean, the, the data on climate change were already very obvious back then. They have only piled up even more. There's more research done on it, there's more of the predictability of the consequences. Um, this is actually, and I, I still want to emphasize that because in particular in the United States, for some reason became a political issue. And this is, you know, not for some reason. I know what the reason is because there is obviously um, economic interests that drive that to become a political issue. But this is the area of research where there is the most consensus in any kind of research. There's not even physics where there is such a consensus. Right. Um, this is one thing, and the same consensus in the ways in the loss of biodiversity, and in both on both fronts. Um, so avoiding climate change um, and and reducing biodiversity loss, we have not made progress, at least not sufficient progress, and uh, and we haven't made progress where it actually counts. And in the past few years, in particular in the United States, obviously, as you may know, we have made a lot of steps backwards. However, the hope there is that this increases the activism that's going around it and, uh, and that will eventually kind of hopefully um, backlash dramatically um, 
and, and lead to a higher consciousness of that. Um, you, you may know that the European countries obviously have, uh, have done or put more policies in action, but even the European countries are far away from what they have to do in order to reduce CO2 emissions efficiently and sufficiently, um, and also to hold biodiversity loss. Um, and, and you can see, you know, the effects are unbelievable. So, I, so we have research sites, you know, I mentioned earlier that I had um, uh, three areas that I wanted to go to, Siberia, um, Africa, and, and the Amazon basin. And we have now um, in my group, we do research um, in both in Kenya and uh, not really in the Amazon basin, but in Colombia and in Peru. Um, and, and in those areas, so in the tropical areas, and Julia may, may her, have heard from her home country as well about that. In those areas, people suffer, right? In Kenya, for example, the farmers were able to predict the week in which rain season starts, right? And this was only 20, 30 years ago. Now they cannot even predict the month anymore. It's just random. The rain comes in, the rain season comes in random or may not come at all. Right, then there's an extended dry season. Then suddenly in the middle of the dry season, a extended rain period starts. And so they cannot plan. So they usually have this very laid out kind of dry season, wet season cycle that determined when they put their seeds out and there's no predictability anymore. And this is really tough, really, really tough. And those are the things where, you know, that, that, that are not the kind of, you know, the increased number of storms and things like that, the, the things that are catastrophic but those are small moving catastrophes that are already happening and we already are not able to return to normal. It's already beyond that. We can only kind of fix to live with it at this point and try to avoid an even more catastrophic event, like things like you know, the, the currents turn around, right? I mean, oceanic currents turn around, which would change weather patterns all across the planet. Um, and so, this is where the problem lies and this is where we need the most activism ever and this is this is serious this is fundamentally serious it already kills 10 times more people than covid does at the moment in the same time periods sorry no thank you so much for sharing um that was really great to hear your perspective so uh julia um i was really interested to learn that you were interested in immunology and that's a lot of your study and um, just, you know, looking at our current world, immunology has been in the news a lot more than I ever remember in my lifetime. Um, so with your background in immunology, do you want to give us your perspective on, you know, the race to find a COVID, a COVID vaccine? And if you think that will be something that will be successful or um, anything to do with that kind of situation? Well, um, first, I will disclose that <laughs> um, as, as far as COVID goes, nobody knows. I mean, we, we don't have answers for most of our questions. Um, so we're learning, we're learning as, as we go, I guess. But um, the principle of a vaccine is actually simple, is um, you, there are different types of vaccines and, and there are uh, some types of vaccines under development for a COVID or SARS. And, um, um, and we don't know which one is going to be more um, have a better uh, um, outcome of protection, uh, the, protecting the population. So that's something we're going to learn as well. Um, you know, a vaccine, when, when you take a vaccine, we call that an, an antigen, right? 
It is recognized by the immune system. There are different arms in the immune system. We, we, we tend to have them in two big sides. The cellular immunity involves more cells, cell activity, cells that can kill target cells that are infected, or humoral immunity, which is the antibody part of, uh, of the immune system. And, um, and of course, the, one of the focus is the production of antibodies uh, for protection. And it seems based on some preliminary information that we have uh, from, from experimental research that antibodies are, are important in protection. So this is one of the goals of the vaccines. Now, will a, a, a better vaccine have both arms of the immune system working together? Maybe so, it's a virus, right? It tends to invade cells. So we would hope that vaccines can do both things at the same time to protect the individuals better. One big question that we don't know is how long the vaccine will um, uh, provide protection. It sounds like we need at least two doses of a vaccine. Are we gonna need more doses to maintain our antibody levels at a certain level? That's something we're going to learn uh, as the vaccine is used. Uh, it seems that uh, infection gives us a short uh, 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 lifespan of antibodies. So we don't carry you know, high antibody levels for very long if you are infected with the virus. So how, that, how a vaccine will translate um, into antibody duration, if you will, how long is gonna be protective, we don't know. Um, and, and people respond differently to vaccines. So even though there is, you know, the um, average of response of the population, some people may respond differently to vaccines with more antibodies, less antibodies. And, um, and, uh, in, and given this virus is very peculiar in the fact that it is um, very easy to transmit and very easy to replicate in the host, right? And cause um, sometimes disease or not. Um, that might be a problem if for people who don't produce enough antibodies, even with, um, with the vaccine. So there's so many questions that we're going to learn um, and we will have to adjust as, as we learn. Um, and then there is a production part of it. So the initial vials, the initial product to get to that point, uh, it's a lot of effort. It'll get easier as as time goes, but the first batch, <laughs> it's 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 um, you know in large scale is is complicated, um, and it's complicated also delivering the vaccine. So there are so many things that are, you know, beyond the beyond the product um, that will play a role. But I think um, we are optimistic um, in general. We know how to make vaccines. We have been able to eradicate diseases with vaccination. So um, I think there is a lot of hope that a vaccine will help us manage this condition. Um, and, uh, and we can go back to our lives. Terrific. Well, I wanted to thank you both, Julia and Andre, for a wonderful interview. For the, for the uh, listeners, thank you as well for listening. Um, please don't forget to tune in to the next Rose Buzz, uh, Rose Buzz episode on November 18th. Thank you all.